Today's reading is from Galatians 5, 7 to 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You may be seated. Thank you, Miriam. Let me pray. Before I pray, I have but one castration comment. In the, I just want to let you know that, okay? I'm going to get it out of the way early because you all giggled. Evidently, getting up an hour earlier made you all immature. So here we go. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, that in Christ we are set free from our sin and our self and the world around us. And Lord, that we're set free, not just from those things, but we are set free for you to serve you with all of our lives. And so we pray as we look at this text today that you'd be glorified, that we would be strengthened, and that the church would be made strong and effective for mission that you've called us to. Help us in this, we pray. Amen. All right, now this text. Text. There's a lot more things before verse 12 comes, so let me just highlight a couple things we're going to see in this text. Uh, Paul takes us from, we're, I'm going to show you this, from the racetrack to the courtroom, and then he takes us into the kitchen. So we're going to look at that. Paul expresses a, a pastoral heart, a, a pastoral confidence in the churches of Galatia that they will respond correctly to the letter of correction that he has sent them. He reminds us a little bit of his past conversion and even his past before his conversion. And then he talks about the absolute offensiveness of the cross. And so we'll look at that. Uh, He's going to talk to uh, us through this text about the absolute scandal of grace. It's scandalous, this whole Christianity thing. And he's going to talk about why it's difficult for us to grapple with the nature of the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, in that it is sufficient for our salvation. That's tough for us to wrestle with at times. And so just like it was tough for them, it's tough for us. And so we'll talk about that. And then he's going to talk to us about circumcision. Uh, but not just circumcision. And in, in, in this wonderful rhetorical flair of literary hyperbole, he actually talks about castration too. So as I said, this text has it all. Um, and, and what he's getting at in this is this. It, it's a... Con- uh, This text is in continuity with what you saw last week in verses 1 through 6. Uh, It's the nature of the true freedom that we have in Christ and how important it is that we live into that freedom, even in the midst of all the counterfeit gospels and the counterfeit freedoms that we encounter on a Sunday, March 10th, 2019 in Vancouver. This is talking about all that. There's, there's lots of counterfeit messages out there, counterfeit messages of good news and counterfeit messages of freedom, but there's something specific and unique going on in the gospel, and Paul's pointing that out for us in this text. And castration. He talks about castration as well. Um, definitely talks about that. He makes a cutting remark. I'm done. I'm done. I promise. I promise I'm done. That's, that's all I got. Okay, last week Jake walked us through chapter 
5, verses 1 through 6. I promise I'm done, though. Actually, that's all I got. If you didn't get that, don't worry. Don't admit that you didn't get that yet. Ask somebody quietly later. It'll be okay. Castration, cutting. Okay, got it. Here's how we're going to look at the text this morning. This is what we're going to do. Very loosely, here's the outline. The racetrack, the courtroom, and the kitchen. That's point one. Point two is obeying the truth. And, and point three that I'm going to try and make today is the offense of the cross. So we're going to look at these three different scenes. We're going to look at the, the racetrack, the courtroom, and the kitchen. We're going to look at obeying the truth. And then we're going to have a look at the offense of the cross. This is the text that Jake walked us through last week. Verse one says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our text, as I said, is a continuation of this thought. It's a continuation of this idea. We're supposed to stand firm in the freedom that has been granted to us by being brought into relationship with God through faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. By faith in Christ... All that he's accomplished, we have been set free. We've been set free from bondage to sin. We've been set free from bondage to self. And we've been set free from bondage to the world around us. It's a comprehensive freedom that is promised to us in Christ. And in freedom, our call is to live as God intended us. And in freedom, he is making us and we are becoming who God has made us to be. And this is serious, Paul says. He tells us to stand firm in our in the midst of any opposition to the freedom that we have in Christ, to the freedom of the grace that he has given us, to the gift of salvation. And because it's serious, what he does is he doubles down and he hits us again from a few different angles. He takes us on the journey from the racetrack and, and to the courtroom and then to the kitchen. This is what it says, verse 7. You were running well, racetrack language. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, courtroom language. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Verse 9 says a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. There we are, we find ourselves in the kitchen. Racetrack, courtroom, kitchen. It says first, racetrack, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, when we're used to watching some sort of athletic competition, we're watching a track meet. We've got a track. It's oval. And there's really nice lanes on it. And you've got to run in your lane or you're disqualified. That's how it works. You've seen this. This is not foreign to you. Just give me a little bit of a head nod. You're with me? I know you lost an hour of sleep. So did I. So come on. Racetrack, oval. That's what we normally see. We run in our lane. We would even have cultural euphemisms like stay in your lane. It's not just for driving on the road. That's for running on the track. Know where you're running. Stay in your lane. That is not, now thanks to some really, really nerdy research by some really nerdy people who I love and appreciate greatly because of this, we can find out that, that in Paul's day, there was not an oval track at athletic competitions with lanes. If there was a running race in Paul's day, it was a pole set off in the distance and you ran from the starting line to the pole and back. So instead of a 400, 400 meter sprint, which is one lap around our nice oval, a 400 meter sprint in Paul's day would have been from a starting line to a pole and back. He says, you're running the race well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? Literally, who cut in on you in the race? You started off running really well. 
And you were out the gate with freedom in the gospel. You were running the race. You were headed down to the pole. You were going to hit that and come back. Who cut in on you? Who tripped you up? Who stepped in front of you, caused you to go off course? That's what he's saying to them. It's an athletic image. Who knocked you off course? See, the false teachers are cutting in on the progress of the Galatians as they move toward full freedom in Christ, as they run their race in Christ. It's the false teachers tripping them up, knocking them off course. Secondly, the courtroom. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, the false teachers, they're not just cutting in and tripping them up. They're hindering them from their life of freedom in Christ by trying to persuade them like a lawyer tries to persuade a judge or a jury. Paul says this is serious. See, the false teachers are trying to discredit the message of Paul and the gospel of Jesus by persuading the Galatians that there is more that is necessary for salvation than what has been accomplished by Christ. That there is more necessary for salvation than putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus. They, they're persuading them and making a persuasive case that there's more to it than that. We've been seeing this all the way through the first four and a bit chapters of this letter. He says the persuasion is not from him who calls you. Him who calls you. That's a quick reference back to chapter 1. Let me show you verses 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See, he's restating what he started out with when he was kind of fired up in the very, very beginning. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Verse 7 says, not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. But there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They distort it. They have a distorted message. And they try to persuade you that you need to take a hold of their distorted message of the gospel. He says, I can't believe... You're so quickly deserting him who called you in grace. They're getting cut in on. They're getting tripped up. It's hindering them from obeying the truth. The truth in verse 7 is shorthand for what he would call the truth of the gospel earlier on. You can look at chapter 2, verses 5, verses 14. It's the message of salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the message that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The false teachers are trying to add to it. They're trying to show that Jesus plus nothing is not everything. That's what they're trying to show. That Jesus plus nothing is not everything. That there's more that is necessary. And Paul says that's a false gospel and you should not be persuaded by it. He takes us from the racetrack to the courtroom and then he takes us into the kitchen. It says in verse 7 through 9, let me read it again for you. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Verse 9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if you're making a loaf of bread, as I'm sure you do, you need leaven, you need yeast. If you mix a little leaven into the loaf, here's the crazy thing. Wherever you put the little leaven in and you knead the dough, it doesn't just leaven the part that's immediately attached to it. It leavens the whole lump. It leavens the entirety of the loaf itself. It works its way through the whole batch. Six cups of flour, two cups of water, one teaspoon of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, and a scant teaspoon of leaven or yeast. 20 minutes, 475, you got a loaf of bread. It's probably going to make two loaves. It's a great recipe. You're welcome. 
a little itty bitty bit of yeast leavens the loaves, the whole lump. What's he trying to get at? He uses the same metaphor uh, when he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. He writes to them about sexual morality in their church. He writes to them about being a little bit distraught by their behavior. And he challenges them with some really difficult words about the sin that they're tolerating within the context of their community. Not not the city around them. He's saying, don't worry about that. The sin that's going on in the community that they're tolerating. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. You're boasting? It's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? (laughs) If you're reading 1 Corinthians 10 chapters later, you get to chapter 15. He's kind of still going on about it. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So in Galatians, the leaven that is spreading through the whole church is the false teaching. In Corinth, the leaven is the sin that's being openly committed and tolerated in the church. And it's spreading all the way through the church. Here's his point when he uses this kind of language in this metaphor. His point is, whether it's false teaching or sin, it's going to spread through the whole church till the whole church is compromised. That's his point. So leavening the lump is a biblical picture of compromise. Listen, a little pinch of demanding anything in addition to faith in the sufficient work of Jesus for our salvation, a little pinch of anything contaminates the whole gospel. But we need to notice something. Verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See, this is actually all related to obeying the truth. They were being hindered, tripped up from obeying the truth. They were being persuaded against obeying the truth of the freedom in Christ alone. (laughs) They were allowing a compromised gospel of false teachers to affect their obedience to the truth. They were allowing it to spread in the church like a leaven in a lump of dough. It's all related to obeying the truth. Now I can hear some of you thinking, well, hang on a second, didn't you just say we can't demand anything in addition to faith in the sufficient work of Jesus? Now you're talking about obeying the truth? thought we had to believe the truth and now you're talking about obeying the truth that sounds like adding works to our faith for salvation doesn't it brett no it doesn't in the bible belief and obedience are like two sides of the same coin you can't say that you believe in jesus and that he is lord who has all authority in heaven and on earth you can't say that you believe that and then not obey him it doesn't work that way If we're unwilling to obey Jesus, it means we don't believe in him, period. Before you think of the other person in your life who's not currently obeying Jesus, but says they believe in Jesus, just just let that hit your heart first. I'm not saying not to take it to the other implications in life, but just let it sit here first.
Jesus said it much more positively than I just said it, so let me quote him. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, Christianity is not just intellectual assent or agreement with a set of propositions of faith, propositions of doctrine. And at the very same time, Christianity is not simply a set of morals that need to be followed. It's a whole life integration of these two where our beliefs are displayed in the fruit of our lives. Um, If you think about it like this, our creed or what we believe is evidenced in our conduct, the way that we live. And our conduct is actually based upon what we believe. So our actions in life are based on what we believe. Last week we saw this in verse 6, and Paul calls it faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith producing something. Faith evidenced in the way that we live and love one another. We're not saved by works, but our works prove our faith. Our works show what we believe. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And you're sitting here going, are you now adding works to it? No, not a iota, not a chance, not a little bit. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But what you believe will be evidenced in the way that you live. And if there is no fruit in line with what you're believing, it's probably not something you actually believe. John Stott said, It is not that works of love are added to faith as a second and subsidiary ground of our acceptance with God, but that the faith which saves is a faith which works, a faith which issues in love. I think Jake shared that with you last week. Now, for what it's worth, I think this is the very center of Galatians. Faith working through love. Obeying the truth is applying our belief to our behavior. It's living out of the fullness of what we believe. Uh, In the first part of Galatians, we talked a lot about being justified by faith alone. But see, this is the thing about justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone is never faith that remains alone. It's always faith that's evidenced in the way that we live our lives. It's transformative. There's something going on in our hearts. And sometimes it's incremental. And it's a little bit here and a little bit there. And we grow a little bit and we grow a little bit. And we look after a decade and we say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not who I once was. But then we can also pause in the midst of that and say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not yet one who I one day will be. We're growing in this. There's a trajectory to this. You have good days and bad days like me. You have times where you effectively stub your toe into the sin of the world and you look at it and go, I didn't think that was still in my heart. I didn't think that was there. I thought I dealt with that. Incremental growth, still growth. Justified by faith alone, yes, but not by faith that remains alone. Let me tell you what I mean. James chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're like, is James preaching a different gospel than Paul? Not a chance. It's the same message. Different emphasis. He's saying your faith is evidenced 
in the way that you live your life. Verse 14 in James chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Cannot faith save him? That's an important question to ask yourself. Can a person say they believe in Jesus, that they have faith in Jesus, and then not prove it by the obedience of their life? Let me rephrase it. Can somebody say they believe in Jesus and then go about their life unchanged and unaffected by their faith in Christ? James asks this question rhetorically. Can that faith save him? There's one scholar who says perhaps the clearest translation would be such faith is not able to save him at all, is it? (laughs) Just in case we're not really picking up on what he's laying down here in James chapter 2, he gives us an example of a problem in the life of the church, and he's been speaking to them about this. In James chapter 2, he's kind of letting them have it for the way that they've treated certain groups of people. He says that they're giving preferential treatment to rich people to the detriment of the treatment of the poor. And he says that it's sin to make this kind of distinction in the body of Christ, that it dishonors the poor. And now he builds that out as an illustration. This is what it says, 14 to 17 in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And he says, let me give you an example. (laughs) If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's about obeying the truth. This is about obeying the truth and not letting anything come in and knock you off course. Not being persuaded that there is a different gospel to be believed. Not allowing the leaven that leavens the whole lump to be active in our church. In our community. In the church of the city. So also by, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here's his point. Faith doesn't lead to works is not faith at all. Faith that does not obey the truth. It's not faith at all. There are lots of people who think Jesus is great. Until you tell them what he said. (laughs) The idea of Jesus is fantastic. Think about this. Some of you have been in the church so long, you, you have to... Learn to think like this. Think like somebody who's not in the church right now. Who's not part of a congregation of followers of Jesus. Who looks at it and goes, yeah, I've seen like some films about Jesus. I've read some stuff about Jesus. There's some Jesus people going around the world doing lots of really great things. There's also some Jesus people that do stupid things. Hypocritical things. Erroneous things. Things that harm others. They kind of look at it and go, well, I don't know if I really am into this Jesus. And they go, well, the Jesus of my conception sure seems like a great example. So we're going to roll with that. Probably wasn't God. He probably didn't die for sin or anything like that. That's probably just fictional narrative that was made up to make people feel better in the moment because their friend and their teacher Jesus died. He seems like a great guy, though. And you go, yeah, do you know what he said? He said he was God. Easy, easy with the Jesus stuff. And Jesus sounds like he might have been a little bit tweaked. Maybe he was bipolar. Maybe schizophrenic. Maybe he was a grandiose narcissist who had grand ideals about who he was and what he was here to accomplish. Yeah, or maybe he was God. But some of you have had so much Christianity for so long, you just got to 
peel yourself out of that for a second. Think about who Jesus is. Who others conceive of Jesus as being. And they'll go, yeah. I grew up in, for me, central Alberta. Historically, it's sort of a little Bible belt in Alberta. And historically, there were lots of cultural Christians. There was a point where people would have said, yeah, everybody here is a Christian. And you're like, have you lived here? I don't think so. I think a lot of people were baptized. I don't think a lot of people are Christians. I think a lot of people might have gone to Sunday school. But there's not a lot of faith. It's evidenced through the fruit of our lives. Faith without works is dead. If the faith you have in Jesus, faith that you believe saves you, does not have an active component of obedience to it, it's actually no faith at all. I like to call it cheap faith or unadorned faith. It's faith that is not adorned with good works. Now, in Galatia, there were preachers who were tripping them up and persuading them against obedience to the truth of the gospel. And in this case, what was happening was obeying the truth meant actively rejecting that which is false before it can spread into the rest of the community like a leavened cancer. And Paul's concern was that they were being hindered by these teachers. It was hindering their obedience of faith. Their obedience to the truth. Verse 7 again, look at it. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is. He knows very well who it is. He knows very well who it is. Again, this is serious. Now, whether Paul is genuinely confident that the Galatians are going to respond to this letter of correction um, and, or whether he's looking at them like, you know, like how your mom or dad looked at you one time. And you're like, I trust you'll make the right decision. You ever have that one? I trust you'll do the right thing. That's what he's saying. I think I don't think he's super confident. Some people think he's super confident. I think he's more like, I trust you'll get it done. Then he says, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless. The one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is. He's saying God will deal with those people. That's terrifying. Verse 11 says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Right? He's being persecuted in the sense that his teaching is being contradicted and his name's being drugged through the mud. He's being persecuted for a lot of other things, but in Galatia, he's being persecuted for that. And it says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So before Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus that you can read about in Acts chapter 9, he was a zealous persecutor of the church preaching Judaism, if I could say it that way. He was preaching that to belong to the family of God, you needed to be circumcised. That was his message. He's saying, if I still preach circumcision, which apparently was a rumor that was going around, 
He says, why am I still being persecuted? He's made clear that that's totally false, that that's not what he's teaching. He says that if he was still preaching circumcision and that it was necessary for salvation, it says he would be removing the offense of the cross. That there was another way that you and your own works and effort could be made right with God. I think that's what he's saying. Paul is preaching the truth of the gospel, the, the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for sinners. That's what he's preaching. And one of the offensive things about the message of the cross is that there is no mere human accomplishment that can make a person right with God. So in that sense, our salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's a divine accomplishment, not a human accomplishment. Something done for us, it's something we don't add to, it's something we receive. So in order to receive it, you need to own the fact that you're a sinner and that you're unable to save yourself. And I don't know if you've tried saying that to any of your friends who don't know Jesus, but that usually comes with a bit of an eye roll or a growl. It's offensive. Mm, yes, I know you're a very good moral person. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are, Grandma. Thank you. Very nice, very kind. Can I have another hard candy, please? Also, you're a sinner. All the good works you've done in your life are damnable good works done unto your own glory. Repent. Like, ah, oh, that sounds a bit different. Uh, I usually just have tea with my granny. The cross is offensive. Cuts against the grain of who we want to be in this world that we live in. The moral, self-centered, high on self-esteem culture that we're a part of. It's a tough pill to swallow when you go, hey, the first step to being saved is to admit that you need it. The offense here is the word scandalon in Greek. It's used here in 1 Corinthians 1. Let me show you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Uh-oh. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 22 says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Look, a stumbling block, a scandal on to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So to the Jews, anybody who was hanged on a tree was cursed, and so they couldn't really accept Jesus because they didn't anticipate a Messiah who would come and die in a cursed way. But to the Greeks, anybody who couldn't save themselves was weak and without wisdom. They couldn't celebrate that. They certainly wouldn't submit to that. They were looking for a powerful authority to submit to. F.F. Bruce said there is more, a more general scandal on offense attached to the cross, one of which Paul is probably thinking here, cuts against, it cuts the ground out from under every thought of personal achievement or merit where God's salvation is in view. There is a more general offense to the cross, he's saying. It cuts the ground out from under every thought of personal achievement or merit where salvation is in view. It's a major stumbling block 2,000 years ago to the Jews and the Greeks, and it's a major stumbling block today in Vancouver in 2019. It's a major stumbling block in my family. I grew up in a moral household, loving parents, 
better parents than you. Honestly. I look around, I go, my great parents. I came from a great family. Wonderful people who did the right thing most of the time. Who were just very good citizens of the little town that I grew up in. Well-respected. Esteemed by others. No contact with the gospel in my household. When the goal that you have is just be a good guy, and you're meeting that goal, and somebody comes along and tells you that you're a wretched sinner, you're like, what? No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. Like, that's not our answer, just by the way. (laughs) Yeah, you are. No, I'm a good guy. No, you're not. (laughs) I, I like the neighbors that we have on both sides of the house that we live in right now. They're great people. Very nice people. Like, I'd rather live next to them than, like, gang members or a crack house or something like that. Right? That's good. I like having moral neighbors who have, like, a moral compass. It's nice. Makes me feel safe with kids, people who are looking out for them. It's good. It's a good thing. So that's not where I start with them. Right? You're such great neighbors. Also sinner. Like, no, that's not... It's a conception of reality that has to shift. And that's what we have to be looking at here. The cross is offensive. And if we think that human merit can somehow bring salvation into our life, we just have to to be able to erase that. That's the offense of the cross. It's a divine accomplishment, not a human accomplishment. John Stott said, The good news of Christ crucified is still a scandal, grievously offensive to the pride of men. It tells them that they are sinners, rebels, under the wrath and condemnation of God, that they can do nothing to save themselves or secure their salvation, and that only through Christ crucified can they be saved. Right, John Stott, great fun at parties. To remove the offense of the cross is actually to lose the whole plot of Christianity. Like, you lose the whole thing. You take the cross out of it, it's over. It's done. It's just another group of do-gooders with an example that they follow. It robs the cross of its saving power. But it actually gets worse, because here's what our message is in the city of Vancouver on March 10th in 2019. Our message gets worse to the ears of our generation, because we actually preach the cross as a means of freedom. As a means to freedom. Obeying the truth (laughs) is our means to freedom. That doesn't make sense. I have to follow somebody else's rules to... Hang on. You, You have to have a new conception of what life actually looks like. See, freedom defined this way. It's like the cardinal sin of the secular world that we live in. Because it demands that we redefine any cultural notion of what freedom actually looks like. So our freedom in Christ comes through obedience to the truth. The truth of what? The truth of the offensive nature of the cross that we need Jesus to be saved. So to receive the work of the cross means to put yourself under the authority of God and in obedience to his commands. And a lot of people can't square that away with what they think freedom is supposed to look like in life. I'll tell you, before I came to Christ, I agree. I agree. Freedom did not look like submitting to anything or anyone, anywhere or anytime. Nobody's biblically free until they accept that they actually are enslaved to sin, self, and the world. And are willing to forsake those things in favor of obediently serving Jesus as both Lord and Savior. So, Jesus is not simply a Savior, he's also Lord. 
He is the Savior who dies for us and rises for us and gives us new life. But he's also the Lord who we obey. You don't get an either-or kind of choice. Like, you can't say, okay, I'll obey the commands of Jesus, but I don't think that he needed to die for me on the cross because I think I'm a pretty good guy. But I'll still follow the thing. I'll still look at him as an example. I'll still follow the rules. Ten commandments are great. I'll follow them. But I don't need Jesus to save me because I'm a good guy. I'm not a sinner. You don't get to choose him as Lord and not have him as Savior. On the other hand, you don't get to have him as Savior and not Lord. You don't get to say, yes, Jesus, I'm a mess. Oh, please come and save me. Yes, yes, yes. But I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. No, it doesn't work that way. It's not either or. You don't get either or. You get both and. He is Lord and he is Savior. And so to many, the notion of obeying the truth of the gospel, it's absolutely antithetical to freedom. It cuts against the grain of our cultural ideals of the autonomous individual. So for most people living in our city, freedom is, quote, doing what I want, or freedom is, quote, being my true self. I do what I want, and I know who I am. Can I translate that for us? When people say, I do what I want, and I'm being my true self, What they mean is, I am independent, I am autonomous, and I am the sovereign ruler of my life. Theologically speaking, that stinks of pride and sin. Christ City, we are susceptible to falling into that same definition of freedom inside our faith. We're vulnerable to that way of thinking. Uh, there's a guy named Robert Bella who did a, a, a social survey 25 years ago. And his findings were basically that this so-called definition of freedom, this so-called freedom of doing what I want, being my true self, that it was the most deeply held value in North America. This is the water we swim in. That's why people get their feathers ruffled if you tell them the only way to be free is to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It just sort of fries their circuits. It just doesn't compute because you've touched a nerve and what you've done is you've used a word in a way that they have seen and heard defined differently for the entirety of their lives. So you say the only way to freedom is through submission. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I know it doesn't make any sense because you've told your whole life that, 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 that the opposite is true. You ever, I mean, we just came home from vacation. You ever travel? I always, I always think about this when I go through the security at the airport. So there's like some like five foot two lady who's just like, sandals off. I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, ma'am. Like, oh, I'm not under authority. I'm free. Yeah, go anywhere. You're not free. You go to a restaurant, act however you want. See what they do. The large men in black shirts standing in the back corner with headpieces on, they grab you and they throw you out the door. You're not free. You enter into that establishment. You come under the rules and authority that govern that particular establishment. Go to the airport. You will follow the rules that are set in place by the travel authorities and that particular airport. And that little itty bitty woman who yells at you and says, sandals, because they got buckles on them. You, yes, ma'am. You are under her authority. And her authority is derived from the authority that she is under. This is God's world. Freedom comes through obeying, obeying the truth. 
It's offensive to the modern human psyche. Just think about freedom and obedience. But let me finish with this, and we're going to look at this again next Sunday. It's absolutely vital to our lives in Christ. Verse 13. It says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You've got freedom. What are you going to do with it? You who are in Christ, you're free. What are you going to do with it? How will you use it? It's next Sunday. Would you stand with me today as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.